Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. So you guys, I have a confession to make. I was in the grocery store today, keeping my distance. There was tape helpfully on the ground to show you what six feet looks like. And there was a man wearing an N95 mask while he was, by the way, having some kind of conference call on his Bluetooth headset. And it was all I could do not to go up and snap that mask right off his face. So it was a customer, not yes, a worker. No, in totally. the store. no, all the workers had on masks too, but this customer walking around with it, I'm like, number one, you, sir, do not need that mask. A lot of people do, but of course you can't donate it now because you've breathed into it. But like, if you are so sick that you have to have a damn N95 mask on, do not go to Whole Foods. I am going to speak in defense of that guy. You Do don't it. know. He could be immune compromised. He could be experiencing some sort of low-grade symptoms and acting out of an abundance of caution. But I actually think we should be a grocery store. Hello? I think we should be applauding people for wearing masks in general, and people aren't doing it enough. And so I am willing to extend him the benefit of the doubt that he had some sort of compelling need for using a medical mask as opposed to like a homemade one because you never know he seemed like a jerk i'm just gonna start wearing a bra on my face oh <laughs> haven't you seen these instead of like sewing your own fabric mask you just tie a bra around your mouth this is this is a live internet suggestion and the this internet is, is never wrong i think we should start wearing non protective masks it should just kind of be a vogue thing now to wear a mask you know, like a Guy Fox mask or one of the masks that we have hanging on the wall at Lawfare. I just think maybe masks need to make a comeback. Spider-Man. Ben Whittis, this is your time. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the Don't Be a Mask Hole edition. I'm Shane Harris. I do have two masks in the house. I have not used them. They were given to me before things got really serious. I'm hanging on to them. I'm not wearing a bra on my face, however. We have these really awesome masks that everybody hates at Lawfare. Which, oh my God, um, they're the worst. I'm just going to say it. Yeah, and Michaela Fogel, who is our sometimes audio engineer and associate, and all the time associate editor, has a saying, which is, don't anger the masks. And, <laughs> really? Yes, because uh, they, you know, bad things happen if you anger the masks. You know, I just think this is, this is the time for masks. I've seen those masks, Ben. They already look quite angry as it is. So anyway, I'm here in the Bloomingdale studio talking remotely to my good friends, Susan Hennessy, Ben Wittes, and Tamara Kaufman Wittes. Hi, guys. Hi. Hi, Jane. How goes week three? Is this week three? Well, for me, it's week four. Okay. I'm, I feel like I'm starting to get a battle rhythm a little okay. bit. All right. I woke up before my alarm today. Oh, hey. I That's showered. Progress. Very good progress, Tammy. 
I actually no longer measure time as like a, a unit. Time to me is now just the duration of any given Pixar movie because that's the amount of quiet I have. So like, I don't know, we're 98 inside outs and 100 million monsters universities since this started. You are really having a time. <laughs> In years to come, Susan, quotes from those movies will become your family's favorite inside joke. Will they? Will this be funny at some point? God, uh, I hope so. All hope so. On the podcast this week, state and local governments are on the front lines of the fight against the coronavirus, but there's a lot the federal government can and arguably should be doing. What is the pandemic showing us about the strengths of a democracy versus autocracy? And a new report finds significant problems with applications for FISA surveillance. So, Susan, I want to start with you on this. This We have obviously seen governors really kind of becoming national symbols. I mean, obviously, Governor Cuomo uh, in New York, but also uh, the governors of Ohio, of Washington state, of California. Uh, the governor of Florida may be a little bit in the hot seat right now. He's just declaring a stay-at-home order after having resisted that. But governors have kind of stepped to the front lines and been a lot of the spokespersons, I think, for and, and the directors, obviously, of what actually has to happen to respond to coronavirus in their states, in their communities. And we understand that's how public health generally works in this federal system that we have. But, you know, there's a lot more than just sort of setting the rhetorical tone that the federal government can do. And one of these issues has come up repeatedly is the Defense Production Act. The New York Times had an interesting story uh, this week about times that the act has been invoked, which apparently are quite numerous. And that's interesting because it seems like it's not being invoked that much right now. So, so tell us about what that story said and maybe give us a little bit of a sense of how the DPA is supposed to work in a situation like this. Yeah, so I found this story really interesting in part because the New York Times reports that the Defense Production Act has actually been used hundreds of thousands of times. Um, so even though I, I understood that it was used on a, a relatively routine basis, um, it was sort of surprising to me just how routinely DOD in uh, particular uses this authority. And like, you know, the Defense Production Act, it, it was passed during the Korean War, and and it has a range of different titles. And it's far less compulsory than I think a lot of people believe that it is. What it is, is it allows sort of a range of authorities where the president can issue loans to expand capacity. Some of the coercive uh, aspects are things like requiring companies to prioritize uh, federal government clients over private clients, um, you know, and, and that they can use sort of financial in incentives to get manufacturers to convert to making the particular supplies or material that the federal government requires, both by sort of guaranteeing loans, but even more importantly, by guaranteeing purchases, right? So you can't just ask General Motors to start making ventilators because, hey, there's, you know, potentially maybe there, there's a market. This allows the government to say, we promise if you take this step to, to invest the money in, in converting your manufacturing, we will be the purchasers of this. We are actually going to create the market. And so 
you know, it, it is this sort of powerful and important tool. Um, we've seen the government also invoke provisions of the act essentially to go after price gougers. So there's a case in uh, somebody in Man- uh, in New York who uh, had stored tons of N95 masks and other uh, important medical supplies. Uh, and the federal government actually used the DPA to seize those supplies from a middleman who's, who's attempting to sort of profiteer here. Now, the weird part of this story is that reportedly the president doesn't want to invoke the DPA because he doesn't like the perception of it. He thinks it's about nationalizing our industry. He appears to be somewhat concerned with the idea that this will create the perception of federal government responsibility. Um, At this point, I I really do think it's just kind of a head scratcher why the president wouldn't be more robustly using, uh, you know, this set of authorities in in order to ensure that states, uh, you know, are able to secure the materials that they actually need. Um, Because what we're hearing again and again is states essentially bidding against one another uh, and actually sort of driving the the price up and and creating worse and worse shortage conditions. Um, That's an area in which the federal government really can solve problems. There's another sort of subplot underneath all of this and a really, really disturbing one. And that's that the president does appear to be delivering on promises to red states at a higher level and with more fidelity than states for whom they're either blue states or their governors have been insufficiently appreciative of him. Um, th- there really does appear to be an uneven-handed sort of approach emerging at this point. And, and that's one area that as we start to talk through these various emergency authorities and how the federal government might deploy them, it's a real concern if the federal government is not deploying them equally based on the needs of the states, but instead on some kind of, uh, you know, political considerations. You know, that, that's really, really sort of a, a abusive and, and intolerable behavior. Tammy. Yeah, so I I think that Susan raised a really important role for the federal government that goes well beyond the Defense Production Act itself, which is that there is this inevitable problem of coordination between and across the 50 states of the U.S. federal system. And, you know, in the example she gave about states inadvertently bidding up the prices on necessary goods because they have to do this independently and so they end up competing against one another, there are these problems of the commons that come in when you have 50 state actors acting independently. And that's precisely, you know, where the federal government should be playing a strong role, not only to ensure a market and set a price for certain types of necessary equipment, but also to use things like national strategic stockpiles to ensure that states can get access to equipment, even if they can't get a private contract for it, using FEMA, using the National Guard to fill in, using surplus medical capabilities in the armed forces. But there's another hugely important capability that the federal government has that they could put it even now, put at the disposal of the country as a whole in managing the flow of ventilators and masks and gloves and also patient flow. I mean, sometimes hospitals in one area will be overwhelmed, but across a state border or even across a municipal border, there may be other capacities. 
you know, what entity is it in our government that has the ability to look across a really complex set of operations, understand the flow of demand and supply across a bunch of different locations, and develop a logistics um, network that can supply things that need to be there at the time they most need to be there. Guess who does that? The U.S. military. They have software for this. They have people who spend their careers working on this. And all of that could be put at the disposal of a national effort to coordinate as peaks rise and fall in different parts of the country. None of that requires invoking some ham-handed Defense Production Act. They could be doing that now. That's such an interesting point. And I mean, I'm, I'm surprised in some ways that it's taking us kind of this long in the national discussion to get around to that. And I don't know if it's because people have a fear of, you know, the military stepping in and trying to run things. But I mean, you know, you rightly point out, Tammy, it's a gigantic global logistics agency that, by the way, has its own medical delivery system for, you know, hundreds of thousands of people. So it's not as if this is something that is totally foreign to it. Ben, I want to ask you too. I mean, on this on this question, it seems like we're you know one of the, the points that is getting emphasized here, obviously, is the the coordinating role of the federal government, the kind of speaking role in some in some way as well. And President Trump has obviously used his time at the mic every day for these briefings for you know a lot of political errands, one might say. But he's also talked a lot about opening up the economy, and he keeps talking about this idea of making America open for business. And, you know, one question I have for you is, can he really do that? I mean, what is the authority that the president has to, say, override states on social distancing rules and say, okay, you know, Virginia, okay, New York, enough of this, open up the restaurants, open up the bars, everybody back to work? None whatsoever. What the president has the authority to do is grossly undermine the messaging of the states, including their own orders to their own people about what they should be doing and are allowed to do. But he has no authority to interfere with the police power of the state of New York within, uh, you know, on a public health matter like this. And I suspect that is one reason why, other than the fact that, you know, the he seems to have, uh, you know, sobered up overnight after making those remarks about Easter. I think one of the reasons is that he actually, like, doesn't actually have the power to do it. And that's a reality that he, you know, he complained the other day that the governors were treating him like a shipping clerk. And I thought that was a really revealing moment, not just about his psychology, but about federal power. Because actually the the real authorities here, at least on the ground in their states, are the governors. And the federal government is kind of a shipping clerk. It's interesting when you and Tammy were talking, she was saying who can get supplies anywhere, right? She was saying who can who can manage the logistics of getting, you know, of, of moving things around. Actually, the federal government doesn't run hospitals in New York. Right. It, it's really good at setting up field hospitals in an emergency situation in a military context. But other than the VA hospitals around the country, 
It is not the service provider for large numbers of people. It doesn't have police officers on the streets. So uh, the answer to your question is that realistically, the president, in fact, doesn't have the power to open up the country. He has the power and he this is the power he's exercised most effectively to undermine the social distancing messages and to get his allied network of media to undermine the social distancing messages of the public health community. Tammy. Can I just add one quick point on this, which is that he doesn't have the, uh, the legal authority. He doesn't have the power in that sense, but he does have the power of political alliances. I mean, we saw Governor DeSantis in Florida basically refuse to issue a stay in place order until the Surgeon General, you know, on behalf of the president pretty much said, yeah, it would be a good idea for Florida to have a stay in place order. And then the governor did it, which suggests that if the president stood up on Good Friday and said, time to reopen the economy, Governor DeSantis might turn around and lift that order. I mean, I I think that we do have to take into account the extent to which GOP leaders below the national level are so tightly tied to this man and his whims that they will make policy in response to his words. Go ahead, Susan. So I think Tammy's point about the president providing sort of a basic political leadership is is a really, really important one. That a lot of what the president and the executive branch does in this moment is help give those cues to governors, in some cases help give them political cover to undertake, uh, you know, potentially unpopular activity. I mean, you know, one thing I am struck by as we're having this conversation, we're talking about sort of the executive branch being best positioned to you know, manage all these logistics and have all of this insight into what's happening. And that's, the, that's absolutely true in theory. It's absolutely true when it's come to prior administrations. But I actually don't know that it's true in this particular instance, because we've seen nothing but complete and total chaos. So Politico has a story this morning about the Trump administration reaching out to Thailand, asking for Thailand to send uh, the United States a protective gear for doctors and nurses, and that the Thai officials in response, uh, this is this is a quote, uh, only to be informed by the puzzled voices on the other side of the line that a U.S. shipment of the same supplies, the second of two so far, was already on its way to Bangkok. So this administration is so disorganized, so inept and incapable of understanding what's going on. It's reaching out to foreign governments to ask for supplies that we are sending to them. And that speaks to a level of dysfunction and lack of control and understanding that I do think we have to question whether or not they are even in a position to provide sort of this basic coordinating functions for the states to then rely on. All right. Let's talk now about really the question of democracies and what democracies are able to do Many people have observed over the course of this crisis that autocratic governments, or at least governments with a much more strictly centrally controlled structure, have had an easier time doing things like implementing social distancing policies and forcing quarantines 
Uh, you could think of China. You could even think of Singapore, frankly, which is uh, not exactly autocratic, but is certainly uh, exercises a much stronger control over the citizenry than we would think about in our government. So I'll, I'll pose this question first to Tammy. There was an interesting article by Francis Fukuyama in The Atlantic, sort of trying to weigh this balance now between autocracies and democracies uh, and sort of, you know, is there, does one fall on one side of the line or the other? And he ultimately concludes, Tammy, like, not exactly, right? Yeah. Uh, so Frank Fukuyama makes a really interesting argument that ultimately what makes the difference between a government that can respond effectively in the face of this kind of health crisis, public health crisis, and a government that can't isn't the regime type. It's not whether it's a democratic or an autocratic government, but it's whether citizens trust in their government. And that's a really interesting point because there are autocratic governments that enjoy high levels of public trust, like Singapore, for example. And at least if you believe survey research, China has a relatively high level of public trust in government. In other words, people trust that the government is doing the right thing for the country. You know, obviously, we can see evidence of ways in which autocratic governments have incentives to behave badly in the public health crisis. Um, you know, the, there was a new report out from Bloomberg just today on a U.S. intelligence assessment about the ways in which China, the Chinese government downplayed the crisis, put out false numbers about the number of infected and the number of dead. You know, the government of Turkmenistan has decided to deal with this public crisis by banning the word coronavirus. Um, so we can, you know, we can sort of see some obvious weaknesses of autocracies, but we can also see in the case of the United States and Italy, weaknesses in democracies. And so I think it's worth looking a little deeper at the lessons. And in this regard, I, I want to highlight an article by Rachel Kleinfeld that was published by the Carnegie Endowment a day or two ago. She notes trusting government, as Frank Fukuyama said, is important, but so are two other factors. One is government capacity. In other words, you know, just how functional is a government, whether it's democratic or autocratic. And so you can look at levels of development, healthcare infrastructure, things like that, levels of expertise. And then she also points out that the governments in Asia that did a better job of dealing with the COVID crisis so far are the ones that kind of had been there before because they had the SARS crisis and they learned lessons from SARS that helped them respond more effectively. So you can say that trusting government is more likely in a democracy than an autocracy, at least at a theoretical level. But it turns out that maybe it's not that simple. Yeah. So one of the complicating factors here, I think, is that it's actually hard to know what how the authoritarian governments have performed. So there has long been a certain degree of suspicion of China's public numbers. And there has recently been some kind of analysis of the number of funeral urns that are being released to families in Hubei province, which seems dramatically higher than the number of reported deaths. You know, the numbers in Russia seem improbably low to me as well. And so I do think there's a real question of like, if you have 
countries that are reporting numbers accurately and countries that you have no idea if they're reporting at numbers accurately, the comparison becomes very tricky and I'm not sure how you do it. You know, there's something that's interesting about this as we're talking and this issue of trust and credibility keeps coming up. And, you know, the president, our president, has said repeatedly things from the podium about the coronavirus that just are not true. He's gone off on wild tangents. He's, you know, he's sort of his his, his focus has been distracted, I, I guess you could say. Obviously, you know, Ben, as you put it, he kind of seemed to have sobered up in this most recent press conference on Tuesday, um, in which, you know, it seems like he probably looked at the numbers and finally grappled with the fact that, you know, this is really bad and 100,000 people could die. So it would seem to me that trustworthiness or at least, you know, confidence in the credibility of the information coming from the president objectively should, you know, it, it, it maybe is not that high considering he said so many false things, but the approval rating for how he's handling the crisis, is it like 60%? I mean, I don't know if that's a bump or how exactly we explain that. I know Tammy wants to jump in here, but if anybody has any thoughts on why it is that, you know, it does seem like his approval for how he's handling this is so much higher than it has been on pretty much anything and is out of proportion to the range where he usually is around 47%, which seems to be just explained by his immovable political base. Yeah, Shane, I think that's a really interesting point. And I also think that it lets us recognize that there is a distinction, a meaningful distinction between the public's trust in their government in a broader sense and the public's trust in their individual leader in a specific sense. And Trump's credibility is low, but we also know from public opinion polling that the American public has declining trust in government institutions of all kinds, and that's been declining for over a decade. And so in a way, it's, you know, the, the low social trust is overdetermined. And what you have now is a president who is getting out and speaking to the public every day at a moment when people are uncertain and fearful. He sounds decisive. So even if he, you know, contradicts himself a couple of days later, or even if what he says is then amended by his experts, he's speaking in a decisive manner when people want to feel like somebody is in charge. So I think it's like at that basic social psychological level that that's why we see his approval rate go up, even though people don't necessarily trust more in his decision-making ability or his capability as a leader in a crisis, it's about tone, I think, more than substance. Yeah, so I think this is an important point and one that is a little bit sort of being borne out at the state level right now. Um, so I'm forgetting the publication I was reading it in, but sort of a, an examination of why Andrew Cuomo, the governor of New York, is receiving so much praise uh, versus Jay Inslee in Washington. Um, and that actually, you know, Cuomo was not great at the beginning of this and he made a lot of missteps. And, and there is a reason why New York is now finding itself in this terrible position 
position, whereas other states that were really aggressive early on are ultimately going to fare better. And yet uh, the perception of strong leadership is that somebody like Cuomo, who's out there every day, uh, you know, in front of the media, speaking to people, seeming to be in control of the situation, that that's being perceived as somehow a steadier hand or better leadership. You know, one thing I do suspect is that when the actual crisis is over, uh, our understanding of responsibility, of blame, of what went wrong will be quite different than, you know, our, our perceptions at, at this particular moment. And I do think one big question is, what is the data that will inform those perceptions, right, that we have a month from now or two months from now? You know, how difficult will it be to get accurate death counts? Will we have something like a 9-11 commission, some sort of body that reviews how exactly things went so terribly, terribly wrong? And I think it's worth noting that even as a lot of the media is praising Trump's press conference yesterday for this new serious tone, he really was out there sort of talking about 100,000 deaths, 100,000 to 240,000 American deaths as being a metric of success. And, and, the, and the primary way he was using those numbers was really not to tell the public, this is really serious. This is really scary. You need to be prepared. You need to take measures to protect yourself and your family. But instead, he was saying, hey, well, it could have been two million deaths. So, you know, if only 100,000 people die, then they'll be saying I'm the greatest president there ever was. And so even in these really, really critical public health moments, that information was still being used for political goal setting and, and this really sort of warped sense of public communication, um, you know, that we've we've become so acclimated to in the Trump era. I just want to foot stomp this latter point about the press conference. You know, if FDR had done this at the Pearl Harbor attack and, you know, said, think of all the battleships they didn't sink, or if after Bull Run, Lincoln had said, yeah, but they could have killed all of our troops. You know, this is kind of the equivalent, right? It's like, if I don't lose the whole army, then I'm the greatest general ever. And for some reason, when Trump does those things and says things like that, they, for a large number of people, they don't sound as ridiculous as what I just said, though they are. I do think there is one metric that we do have. It's not a controlled experiment, but it's it's relatively good, which is the performance of our peer countries. And you say, well, we don't know how China really did. We suspect it was pretty awful um, relative even to the numbers they've released. But we know how the EU countries are doing. We know how South Korea is doing. South Korea has some built-in advantages, which we can talk about, but they're not trivial. But to me, the country that we should be performing at the same level as is Germany. It's large, it's democratic, it's federal, and, you know, we have a lot more cases than they do and a much higher rate of death than they do. Um, now, whether that's because they're behind us or because we're not doing as well, I don't know. But I look at Germany and France and I say, these are the big European democracies with large, diverse populations and, and high standards of living. 
they're the countries that we should be performing roughly the same as. And I, right now, I mean, France is probably just as bad as we are, but Germany is is not. And I think that's a question that the U.S. federal government has to answer. Why why is German response so much more effective than ours? All right. I want everybody to remember another time before the coronavirus, even maybe before the impeachment, see if you can remember controversy over FISA warrant applications. You have to stretch your memory for that, Shane. This is like I'm having visions of like, it's this. is it the 60s? Are there Hulu? It's so far back. It's because of the FISA warrant that we were unprepared to deal with the COVID crisis. That's the reason. Exactly. Because the wires were tapped. The wires were crossed. Okay. Ooh, I see what you did there. It's all very clear now. Uh, ben, the Department of Justice Inspector General is out with a, I think it's fair to say, a much anticipated review of the process for getting a FISA or Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act warrant. Uh, obviously, this is uh, kind of springboarding off of the warrant that was approved for surveillance on Carter Page, uh, formerly a Trump campaign advisor. Tell us what the IG found and what it means in light of the, the earlier Carter Page warrant and the president's insistence that his campaign was spied upon by the Justice Department and by the Obama administration. So first of all, one one quick correction. It was not a highly anticipated report. It was not anticipated at all. So after the Carter Page, the Crossfire Hurricane report, the IG launched, because of the problems in that case, an audit of other FISA applications of U.S. persons in an attempt to see, hey, is this a problem specific to the Carter Page case, or are there general problems with accuracy in FISA applications? And so he's chugging along with this audit, which was presumably supposed to take many, many months. And the data that he churns up is sufficiently alarming that he sends a cursory interim memorandum. It's not even really a report to the FBI director saying, I've examined 29 FISA applications and there are factual accuracy problems in all of them. And so, first of all, what does it, to, to answer your direct question, what does it mean in terms of the president's sense that there's spying on his campaign? It actually, in a funny way, it kind of undermines that in the sense that, you know, if Carter Page's case were unique and the misconduct and errors in it were highly unusual, then you would say, well, wait a minute, uh, why did they happen in this case, but no other? But here it looks like actually these kind of problems are relatively frequent or maybe even ubiquitous. And so while that is, that is a terrible, terrible thing, and it's actually a much bigger problem in my view than a single case of, of political spying would be, you know, as bad as that would be, it is a different problem. So look, I think this report is terrifying myself. And I didn't react that way to the Carter Page report because it was only a single case. And so, you know, maybe it was an isolated set of incidents. Here, this 
document really raises the question to me about whether the average FISA application is dramatically less factually rigorous than people like me for the last 20 years have believed. And that has really vast consequences if that's the case, including that, you know, because FISA is a non-adversarial process, defense lawyers never get to challenge these applications if they are not really pristine and the FBI is not being scrupulously accurate and candid with the court, you have a major civil liberties problem here. And so I've I've been interested at, you know, partly because of coronavirus and partly because of the the fact that it doesn't really support the president's spying narrative it doesn't seem to have gotten quite the kind of attention that it might have had it been spinnable as a as a political spying story but i think it's a really big problem and i'm not sure how the fbi is going to deal with it susan you're the lawyer the former intelligence agency lawyer what say you yeah, so I largely agree with Ben. And, you know, I was a little bit of a skeptic following the reports about the Carter Page FISA. You know, my view was, yes, they were errors. Yes, they were serious ones. But I, I thought sort of people were overstating the actual materiality of the errors in the application and that sort of based on the facts, uh, it was still pretty clear to my mind that the actual legal standards were met in fact. And I was more inclined to think, well, to the extent that there were errors here, it's probably explained by some sort of peculiarities of the Russia investigation, right? It's it's run out of headquarters. It's sort of tightly controlled for information. It's a quick timeline. You know, this this explains exactly what's going on. You know, this report and what it describes, this newer report, it, it's just basically indefensible. I mean, what it really says is that the Woods procedures are not being adhered to with any kind of rigor. And actually, for a number of cases, it appears that there aren't Woods files at all, right? And it's unclear whether or not they were lost or whether or not they were never done in the first instance. And the only explanation for that is a widespread cultural issue at the Bureau and a widespread cultural issue within the Office of General Counsel. And I agree with Ben that that's really, really scary in part because of how difficult it is to change those types of issues. So if this was about sort of like a, a specific procedural gap or, or some sort of weird peculiarity that we could slap another procedure on it or maybe elevate it, require that a few additional people sign off, um, you know, that's it's I'm not going to say that's easy, but but that's sort of doable. We know how to do that. In a case like this, though, sort of attempting to transform a culture of transparency, of full disclosure to the court, of full disclosure up the chain of command, and, and frankly, just sort of attention to detail and, and sort of being really, really careful with the work itself, you know, that's really, really difficult. It requires real leadership. You know, Bob Mueller made big cultural changes to the FBI on modernization and sort of post 
that was really, really difficult. Comey made big cultural changes to the organization. That that was really difficult. It required real leadership, real sort of understanding and a process of keeping faith with the workforce. I don't know that Chris Ray is in a position to do that at this moment. I don't know that he's empowered by, you know, sort of the political leadership above him, certainly not the Department of Justice, um, or sort of the the the, the difficult position um, that, frankly, the president has placed the FBI in at, at this particular moment. It's sort of, it's a damned if you do, damned if you don't situation. And so, you know, look, if you aren't confident that you can undertake the, the, that kind of transformation of an institution, and I don't think we should be confident of that at this point, that means that you have to think about the kinds of radical reforms that actually realign incentive structures. So things like allowing for adversarial testing, you know, it's sort of realigning how we might staff and uh, staff the court and try these cases really from a bottom-up way, that is going to transform the FBI's relationship with the rest of the intelligence community. It's going to transform the FISA process. It it will be a necessary process potentially, but it will be one with lots and lots of very, very significant costs to intelligence reporting, to sources and methods. And this would be a huge mess and a hugely difficult challenge under any set of circumstances. And yet the set of circumstances we find ourselves in now in terms of the political landscape and the leadership landscape make it a million times worse. And so, you know, I I agree with Ben sort of this is an indication that that the Bureau is in for some really, really difficult years ahead. And and I, I don't even know quite where they would start at this point. Ben, just in the few minutes left in this segment, I mean, we could talk for a long time about, you know, different kinds of structural changes and things that could be done. But let me just ask maybe as more of a provocation, is this, is there an argument for just blowing the whole thing up and taking the authority for processing these applications away from the Bureau and giving them to someone else or even just suspending the law and saying, start over, create a new process because this one is beyond repair? Well, it's a very interesting question. So the answer to the first part of the question is, who would you give it to, right? So the people who do counterintelligence investigations and counterterrorism investigations is the FBI. So they're the people who need this authority for the things they do. Now, I suppose you could, you know, build a new law enforcement, counterintelligence, counterterrorism entity, but talk about hard projects, building something from scratch is a heavier lift than, you know, forcing the FBI to be more factually rigorous, I think. So the answer to the second question is, could you imagine an entirely different process? I suppose you could, but I don't know what it would look like. If you take as a given that it has to allow judicial review, allow the protection of intelligence sources and methods, and if you accept that the normal warrant process is not adequate on those la- that latter point, you're talking about something that looks a lot like FISA. And so I sub- I don't I don't don't ever want to say you know, we could not imagine a better process because like, 
human imagination is a wonderful thing, but I can't sketch one out that protects the equities that FISA was designed to protect and doesn't look a heck of a lot like the one that we have. All right, let's move on to let's move on to a thing we do understand and that needs no fixing at all, object lessons. Tammy, do you want to go first? Sure, I'll go first. So, so I begin with so, as we so often do. I really meant not to, but my object lesson is a little video. There have been so many social media gems that we've all found and shared during the course of this quarantine. And I suspect that many of you have already come across a new poem by the author of the wonderful children's book, Go the Fuck to Sleep. He wrote a sequel called Stay the Fuck at Home. And Samuel L. Jackson is on video reading Stay the Fuck at Home for all of you. So I'm going to post this video to the show page. He was on Jimmy Kimmel Live, but I don't watch Jimmy Kimmel Live. And I don't know how many of you do, but you don't want to miss this video. Samuel L. Jackson says, stay the fuck at home. He does seem like exactly the right national spokesperson for that sentiment. Bravo. Um, I'll go next. My object is uh, listeners will remember I recently talked about watching the film uh, Contagion, the Steven Soderbergh film, uh, because that's what I do when I'm in the midst of a pandemic as I watch movies about pandemics. Uh, And I thought it held up surprisingly well. I don't remember loving it at the time, but, you know, I think it's 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 really it's it's a it's a good film now that kind of preps us for how to think about where we are. There's another movie that was made before that that I recently also watched called Outbreak. Outbreak sucks real bad. Yeah, it really sucks. Outbreak, I remember distinctly thinking Outbreak was a good movie. It's based on a fantastic book loosely called Hot Zone. Y'all, this movie is awful. It is, tr- I, mean, I couldn't, I could not watch it all at once. It's like a movie of the week had a budget. And it's <laughs> like, it's just, it's just so hackneyed. And like the acting, it's just, it's, it is it is almost like it is certainly some of the worst acting that's ever been done by multiple Oscar winners. Like this is also a very good Stars, indication. Name names. <laughs> oh yeah, Ke- like there's literally a scene with Kevin Spacey, gross, Dustin Hoffman, and Cuba Gooding Jr. in a room where they're talking about trying to like mat- doing contact tracing on a whiteboard, and it's like the three of these men are going to eat each other in addition to the scenery. It is just <laughs> horrific. Like the only person showing an ounce of restraint in this film is Rene Russo, who's actually, you know, attempting to create some kind of dynamic character like Donald Sutherland. Even when she's feverish, I must say. Even then, she's more believable than they are. I mean, it's just crazy. Like they're competing with the monkey in this movie to see who can be like more bouncing off the freaking wall. They're just, it's just so, so bad. Donald Sutherland like looks like weirdly like he just had like a face peel or something. It's (laughs) It doesn't look right at all. I mean, easily the worst performance of this man's very long career. Biosecurity movie reviews with Shane. It's a new feature on rational security. Yeah. And like the science of it doesn't even seem like quite that off. It's like, it's kind of like Ebola and whatever. And it's super scary, but wow, it is so bad. Y'all skip it. I'll, I'll find something else for you to watch. And hopefully, I'll have something else for you to listen to next week. This week, we made it through. This was a good episode, you guys. I feel like we've got our our rhythm down, our remote rhythm. It feels good. 
I love recording from the bed studio at, in Upper Northwest. I They're miss you guys, though. I, I really do. I do. I miss your smiling faces and trying not to laugh so that it doesn't <laughs> show off on the podcast. Oh, wait. I do have an object lesson. Oh, you do? All right. Make it yeah. clear. Um, my object lesson is my new YouTube show with Kate Klonick. You already had this object. It was an aspirational show at the time. It is now real. And we have done seven episodes. The eighth episode is tonight. We are every day live at 5 p.m. And uh, you should join us. It's called In Lieu of Fun. Did you get like, did somebody like bomb into it? Did I read that correctly? Yes, we had a Zoom bombers, a coordinated troll attack on the show, which was super fun. And yeah, no, we have a good time. And there's always scotch involved. And a lot of rational security listeners are showing up and asking questions. So if you are not one of them, you should show up and ask questions. And Shane, you should be on the show. I would love to. I would love to. Uh, I, I, I definitely hope that I'm not uh, Zoom bombed or whatever it is by anyone, but I will be prepared if that happens. And Susan, you should come on the show as well with all your spare time. Done and done. Well, until then, Rational Security is, of course, a production of Lawfare. You can find our show page at lawfareblog.com. Uh, you can find uh, audiobooks of Tammy reading Stay the Fuck at Home. Uh, or go at, the fuck to sleep. <laughs> or either one. Either one. Oh, hey, my cat's in the studio. Hi, get down. <laughs> I got totally distracted. There's literally a cat trying to get into my lap. <laughs> you cannot find my cat at the lawfare store. Dot cat. Right, Ben? No, but you can find a big poster of you and your cat. And it says, Shane's cat says, stay the fuck at home and go the fuck to sleep. She definitely would tell you that. <laughs> you can follow us on Facebook. You can find us on Twitter at RATL Security. Whenever you download the podcast, please be sure to leave a rating and a review. It really helps us out, and we really appreciate that always, especially now. The show was engineered this week by Ian Enright at Goat Rodeo. The show is produced and edited, as always, by the lovely Jen Patia Howell. Music this week by Donald Trump with his timely rendition of Monty Python's Always Look on the Bright Side of Life. Nice. I like it. It's only 240,000. And you can whistle. You can whistle. (laughs) Not bad. Not bad. Sophia Yan might approve of that. On behalf of my good friends, Tamara Kaufman-Wittis, Ben Wittis, and Susan Hennessy, I'm Shane Harris. Always look on the bright side. See you next week. Bye-bye.